2: Came into sharp focus. In the UK police identifying the suspect who
1: killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection
2: with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA.
0: Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth. And freedom will be defended. Sadly, every week an emergency service worker will take their life because they feel they have nobody to turn to. In particular, the vocation of policing we've often described on this podcast as incredibly challenging. The incidents that police officers attend, the sudden deaths they investigate and the death messages they deliver all take their toll. And for some, sadly, it becomes too much to handle. We need to do more to support our colleagues. We need to ask each other, are you okay?" And not be afraid of the answer. In part two of this chat about police mental health, I've had the honour to sit down with Gary Hayes and Darren Stokes and talk about the remarkable work that they do at PTSD 999 and the efforts that they go to for police officers and other emergency service workers in helping them overcome their mental health struggles. Both Gary and Daz open up about their own struggles with mental health and the thoughts they had in ending what was too painful to cope with. Both have recovered and now recognise that they need to do all they can to support their colleagues in frontline policing. These two men are incredible leaders. They're extremely brave and have one thing in mind, to support others and to help people navigate mental health challenges. Their work is so important, and I would ask anyone listening to this episode if you can give anything to PTSD999. These funds go towards supporting those who have looked out for us for so long and they now need our support to get through the challenges of what they've witnessed and gone through. So please give generously. All this and much more next on Protect and Serve. Well welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve and this is part two of what is probably one of the most important chats that I'll have in this series. You know part one I've Just finished up talking to Graham Cole, PC Tony Stamp, who was on our screens for more than 20 years, portraying the role as, you know, Sun Hill's area car driver and taking us through all those really fundamentally important stories of, you know, what police officers go through both professionally and personally. That's in their their relationships they may or may not have with colleagues. It can be the stresses they have with incidents they attend. And how they affect them both personally and professionally and kind of, you know, we talk about this bucket that gets filled up of all the emotions that we carry out throughout our careers. And it's only really been in the last five, 10 years that we've started to recognize the importance of looking after our own mental health and kind of understanding some of the ramifications of some of the trauma that we experience as police officers. So without further ado, as we spoke about towards the end of the podcast, um, Graeme is the president of PTSD999, an incredible organisation which is supporting police officers and emergency services workers with these challenges, which are very real and cannot be understated. So I hope we all get something out of recognising that there are people to talk to. But without further ado, I need to introduce two very, very important people to the podcast, the two chaps that established ptsd 999, and that is Gary Hayes and Darren Stokes. Gary, let's start with you. Uh, you know, like every good detective, when he's take carrying out an interview, you want to start at the beginning of somebody's story. Tell us briefly about your policing history.
2: Yes, yeah, so I joined the police uh, very late in life. I was about 33 years old, having spent some time in the military, um, close protection world, um, and I joined the BTP in 2003. Um, and I started my career. Um, on the underground based at West Ham, um, covering all the issues around sort of that area, local area of East London. Um, Very interesting time, to be fair. Um, Sort of went on from there onto our London North area, but in between that we had the um, London bombings, which sort of changed the dynamic of policing on the railway uh, Mm -hmm. and the way we dealt with, dare we say, other incidents uh, around terrorism and stuff like that. So, yeah, I had quite a productive time. Uh, lots of plain clothes stuff, lots of leading teams up and down the country. Um, lots of very, very interesting jobs linked with terrorism. Uh, I was part of our specialist search team, response uh, driver. Um, quite a fulfilling career. Uh, and unfortunately for me, uh, in 2014, I had to leave the job as a result of an off-duty incident, which was the trigger for the chronic complex PTSD that I didn't realise I was suffering with. Um, so I left the job in 2014, unfortunately, and we set up PTSD 999 uh, as a result of that.
0: Are you able to talk us through that incident in terms of what was the catalyst for it?
2: Yeah. Um, so basically, um, I was off-duty, just spent 12 hours over the uh, Olympic site uh, 2012, um had quite an arduous 12-hour shift um obviously searching for component parts of IEDs and stuff like that um and contrary to belief it it was a very testing time for us we were under a lot of scrutiny all of the search teams were Um, we had some pretty good finds actually um and I came home that day went to our local shops and an incident kicked off um with two gents um just literally at our local shops, I called the job in. Unfortunately, it was one of those that I couldn't walk away from. Mm. Um, and the end result was that I ended up rolling about in the station on the trespass side of the uh, platform with an individual who had just tried to throw two young Met uh, police officers onto the track. I was uh, not dressed in my PPE. I had my middle child with me, was about ten, um, so the train was coming in towards the station my son could see me rolling about on the edge of a platform with this idiot um, and two cops um, managed to well, detain him I punched him a couple of times um, and it was enough to get some cuffs on him um, but during that process um, once the I don't know the realization the danger that I was actually in hit me And the fact that I could see and hear my son screaming because he thought his dad was going to roll under a train. It took me back to what we believed to be the sort of catalyst for the PTSD um, that I had. And that was as a result of something in the temporary mortuary where I was posted to uh, during the aftermath of the London bombings. And it took me back to a young child or young man, beg your pardon, um, that I was dealing with. His father had come to view um and I put a lot of safeguarding in place for myself um in relation to all of the victims um who unfortunately I helped to uh, identify all 52 plus what was left of the four bombers um and this gentleman had come in to pay his respects I found out unfortunately at the last moment uh, via a colleague that that was his only child allegedly Um, he had just recently lost his wife and for me at that time, I'd become a, a new dad again. Uh, my wife was a serving Met Police officer. Um, and she thankfully um, had our third son a couple of days prior to the bombings. Whereas with my other two children, uh, my other two boys, she was actually at work at the time and would have gone into labour at work and was taken to hospital from there. So had our third son come on time, she would have been on the gate train that went up. We, we got that down to a fine line of about a minute timeline um, because that's the exact time she went through Allgate to get to a police post at Harbin. So all of that is flashing through my head. I can see this dead young fella on the gurney. I can hear my son screaming and it just, I don't know, Some it just, the switch was flipped. And uh, yeah, 17 months later, I'm <laughs> gripping the rail. Um, at Crown Court for a, an ABH offence which unfortunately I was found guilty. Um, however the the judge was amazing. He actually realised the, the difficulties I was in and obviously the difficulties I would face had I been sentenced to prison. So he sent us away, this was just before Christmas 2013 he sent us away for pre-sentencing reports and at the time I went to see probably the top forensic shrink in the country um almost three and a half four hour interview with that gentleman and his report was quite in depth Um, and basically just came back and said look you know gary's perfectly normal individual um however his out of character um reaction to that event was due to and he pinpointed back to the bombings and all the uh, fatalities i dealt with on the railway, and other traumatic incidents. So when I came away from that, thankfully, I wasn't sentenced to prison. I, I got a uh, six-month suspended sentence for a year. I was ordered to pay the individual that I'd punched um, and detained in some somewhere in the sum of fifteen hundred pounds there and then. Um, and I got 105 hours community service um, as a result of saving two Met coppers' lives and the complainants, would you believe? Um, but it got me thinking because I did rock bottom um, and I went to take my own life at that time as well. Um, I you know, I was absolutely in a desperate place. I'd let everyone down in my mind. I'd shown myself to be not the strong person everyone thought I was. You know, the, this title that had been given to me, I was a, a, a leader. Everyone came to me for help whilst I was in the job. Um, you know, I sorted stuff out first in, last out, which was my regiment and motto, um, and that sort of stuck with me. Um, But I'd hit rock bottom. And, you know, looking back, there'd been no help for me. Um, Close colleagues had sort of suggested that there was something not quite right. Um, Me being the archetypal alpha male, just ignored them because I didn't want to admit to myself that I was struggling Um, and as a consequence of attempting to take my own life. Um, A week or so later, I sat down with a wife and we just had a a huge discussion about stuff. And I just thought to myself, well, we need to do something to help all my colleagues. There was no help for me. Um, And PTSD was born really as a sort of a social media platform, but it very quickly grew legs. Um, Myself and the other co-founder, he's a former military man, Um, We soon realised that we had to do something a little extra. Um, We were able to get hold of some trauma-focused clinicians and, you know, we're a a non-for-profit social enterprise at this time and we're actively working towards our our full charitable status as we talk. Um, So we were dependent on people raising funds for us, um, which enabled us to help pay for some of the treatment um, for the men and women of our emergency services that were coming to us. Um, and that's where we currently are at the moment so we're still working hard um, you know raising funds raising lots of awareness through presentations that Darren and I've put together um, and we're moving forward in I would suggest a positive way
0: well what what an incredible story Um, and I think thank you for sharing us with us I think is the first thing Um, but but secondly if If I just jump to Darren very quickly, you know, Darren, there'll be a number of stories like Gary's currently today and historically. And having been in the police myself for a number of years and now outside it, it's what what should we be looking out for to be able to spot our colleagues that aren't in a good place it's not an easy thing to identify because you know people like Gary are the go-to people the strong characters the people that we rely on they're always there they're always on time they're always backing us up they're always there at the difficult jobs but sometimes they appear to be the more vulnerable ones amongst us
1: quite a lot of the signs and symptoms can cross over to all mental health conditions but they're also um they're also signs of, of just being human trauma is a um natural response to an abnormal situation so Often it could be little things, and that could be um, mood swings and temperament, um, little triggers. So, for instance, I'm sure we've all been in an office when someone's actually lost the plot because you haven't put a sugar in the tea, or you haven't washed up a cup. And some people just are like that, but others, it's it's not normal for them. It's as you've touched on before. It's not bucket and. We're not able to process the everyday stresses in our life because it's all filled with, with with trauma that we haven't processed. And it may seem simple, but it's just that little um little instant, wherever it may be, that everyone else will be able to cope with in, in a normal way. It, when you're struggling, you're just not able to. And other things would be sort of being withdrawn. Um, being in the life and soul of the party one week. And then the following week, you're just not interested. You, you're making excuses not to the it with colleagues and friends. And in the especially with the, with the men um, mm. and in the roles that we do, we're meant to be We're seen as this strong um, organization, a strong person representing an organization, wearing the uniform, uh, and to be able to admit that uh, things aren't right or it, it's difficult. The men in general, but also men who, who are working the roles that, that we're working in. But I think, I mean, I think it's if you see anything different about the colleague, then you need to ask you need to ask them. I think that's part of the issue. We, we're scared of asking, well, um, right. and it's twofold. Uh, we're scared probably because we don't want to offend them, and the other thing is oh, oh, some of us are scared to ask in case they actually say, Yeah, I am struggling because we will not know what to do we're very good at um helping the public When a member of the public was if was asked to help with through mental health mental health crisis or through um thoughts or through that suicide or suicidal behavior it be second nature but to most police officers when it's one of our own we don't know what to do which is bizarre
0: and one of the difficult challenges is is that i've you know i i'm a a two thousand four five vintage in terms of when I joined policing, and we talked. You know, we talked briefly about how to kind of overcome scenes of extreme trauma. Now, I've never been to a scene. I've I've been to some fairly horrific traffic fatalities, but I've never been to a scene like a seven seven terrorist attack, which is. And I've I've never been placed in sort of Gary's position as a mortuary technician, assisting in identifying what can only be incredibly graphic and challenging to overcome that exposure to what is just complete and utter horrific trauma um and especially when that's associated with young people and you can start to personalize it with family members and bereaved people it becomes a very very difficult place to environment and ultimately to try and process all that and years gone by we've been very bad at talking about mental health ptsd because we didn't want to be portrayed as being weak you know and, and it was it's never been part of our our training so I suppose my question, Gary, to you is, is what are we doing now in the emergency services space? And I know Darren is championing a lot of this, but I'll ask you, Gary, what are we doing to move this forward so that our new youngsters and well, and older generational police officers that join at later ages can cope with the challenges that they're going to come across? Because it's still a very, very tough job.
2: Yeah, um, I think that unfortunately at the moment, without the likes of Darren pushing awareness around mental health in his current role, it's still a very taboo subject. Um, you know, when I joined in 2003, um, I had a rough idea of my environment on the railway and what it might involve, the odd fatality, you know, due to suicide mm-hmm. or accident. Um, however, we watched a, a grainy BBC One film that they showed or used to show back in the 70s. It had no um, comparison, as I'm sure you both agree with the reality of dealing with somebody that's Mm -hmm. been struck by a train, whether it be on the underground, um, which primarily people seem to survive a little bit more than they do on the main line. um, And that comes with its own set of circumstances. Dealing with victims of um, GBH, violent uh, assaults, again, RTCs, there's no real training. I feel that prepares the individual for that moment in time. So, you know, the Met Police um, are very lucky to have Darren because he's pushing that. Forces are around the country, along with the sort of fire service and ambulance service, are now starting a little bit to recognise that by introducing some early trauma intervention within their um, sort of training programme, it does start to prove well for the individuals because let's face it when we put that uniform on or when we used to put that uniform on people used to look at us and feel that we were invincible little did they know yes we might be looking professional on the outside and dealing with something quite horrific unfortunately on the inside we were exactly the same as them you know we're all over the place are we doing the right thing is this the correct procedure you know am i saving this person a person's life or in fact i'm actually causing them to lose their life by my actions. So that's a tough ask, isn't it? Um, but I do feel generically that the, the emergency services really need to start raising a lot of awareness around post-traumatic stress um, and the signs and symptoms because I feel that as soon as they start to do that, perhaps um, we won't have as many people struggling in the manner that we are currently. You know, um, PTSD it's costing a lot of lives up and down the country within our emergency services by suicide, you know, um, which isn't a good thing. Um,
0: and we need to address it. So another point that I wanted to raise was, is that we talk about the trainees come through and the training they get to try and understanding the situations that they're going to be facing, to give them a real good understanding that it's going to be challenging and, and what techniques they can use to talk about these issues, what techniques they can use to overcome them. But equally, there is an obligation, I believe, on the the frontline supervisors, our sergeants, our inspectors, to be able to know how to respond to these often quite what I describe as difficult conversations because, as you quite rightly pointed out, we don't want to ask the question because not only do we fear that the answer we're going to get, going to get is in the, the affirmative. But now what on earth do I do with it? Does this mean I'm going to have an employee who's going to go off on sick leave? I'm now going to be a staff member down. What's the impact that going to be across the team? How's that going to affect the borough? We're now going to have somebody on sick leave. How does that affect our statistics? All those sorts of issues start to affect, I think, those supervisory and frontline managers because they have so much to think about. Now, when I went through my management training within policing, I can put my hand on my heart and categorically say we never ever once touched a subject we would say if you have a constable come to you and says they're not feeling great because they've just been to a sudden death and it's really affected them how on earth are you going to deal with it now I've volunteered myself to go forward for what we called peer support training so that I could ultimately learn to understand what all these mental health issues were so that I could empathise with what the person's going through and then put in strategies to help them. But I suppose, Darren, you're at the pointy end, as as, as Gary has said, as championing this cause for the Met Police, which is a, a, f- a fundamentally critically important role. You must be very honoured to be undertaking it. It's a great initiative by the Met to champion the important cause of mental health. But am I right in saying that it's important for our sergeants and our inspectors and probably our superintendents to recognise mental health and how to deal with it?
1: Um I'm fortunate um, in the fact, of the command I actually work in. I've got um, some great line managers who do champion it, who want to make a difference. Uh, and I think I can't speak on behalf of everybody else, but I know that where I am, I'm, I'm very lucky to have the, the full support of, of the line managers and the encouragement to, to, to their staff to engage with me and to deliver uh, vital training to them, which will keep them on duty and away from to them to them and build some resilience also them the to training and the um skill to recognize it in themselves and these skills are transferable to the whole life as well
2: yeah so
1: by learning things around mental health within the workplace you, you become more um experienced in how you can deal with members of the public how you can deal with colleagues also you're taking them skills back home to the the home environment, and the in your communities and which
0: you live in. Can we talk about briefly, Darren, your own experiences with respect to losing a colleague? Because, you know, um, there is, I don't believe, no greater challenge than losing a colleague that you know and that you had great admiration for. And in, in, in an environment to which people think that there is no risk or the risk is relatively low, are you able to talk us through the incident that uh, I'm referring to and the challenges it placed on you?
1: Um, I'm not going to go into detail about the actual incident out of respect to uh, uh, colleagues and also sure. to the family of, of, of the person that uh, like was taken away. Um, but what I will talk about is, is sort of the aftermath of um, how myself and my colleagues colleagues um, bonded to that trauma. Um, so the place I worked at was dominantly a male environment. Uh, it was seen as um, a role for people that were close to retirement because it, it was sort of seen as it, it, it's not frontline, it's not cutting edge, um, um, but we found out since obviously that through the loss of um, our colleagues that it, it, we're just as risk as everybody else and, and the people that are attracted to that particular role are military quite often and um, and males, mostly of retirement. Because um, they've done a lot of hard work over the previous 26, 27, 28 years, whatever it may be, and, and they see this as they're the, slow down, ready for rushing into sort of into public life and, and being a civilian. So, often, um, so when this incident happened, my colleagues and I just didn't know how to deal with it, Completely be honest. Um, none of us wanted to ask for help because as Gary touched on before we're uh, sort of seen as the sort of um, the, the macho men uh, and amongst our peers as well and one of us wants to ask for help we, we, we're given away uh, we're dropping our shield and showing the weakness and it became so sort of obvious that myself and others were struggling um, so what I did I, when I first met Gary I got Barry in to, to speak to myself and all of my colleagues uh, in the group as a presentation. It wasn't a counselling session because all that was provided by the organisation. Uh, it, it was an opportunity for somebody to listen to Gary, um, big bloke, roughly tough, the ex military, and as open and honest, who talks about their experience, it gives others facilitation um, for others to actually acknowledge how they're feeling. Yeah. and people were quite a bit more open. So for me that was something which made a massive difference with people were actually now reaching out for, for the support. We've got loads of resources and loads of support within the organisation within the police. People quite often are scared to access them. Mm. I'm bringing in PTSD-99, and seeing the impact that I've had on all of my colleagues who are now wanting to talk a bit more, got to be a bit more open and we're looking at at sources of support and and help to get them through this very very difficult time um so from that moment on, i uh, had set about working with with gary and simon the other co-founder and um, introducing it um as much as i could within within policing Mm -hmm. um but what i did not do was look after myself Mm -hmm. i became great at looking after everybody else um, taking on everyone else's um, needs, taking on everyone else's issues, uh, but not not at myself. And, and for many years, uh, my wife said to me, Something wrong, something not quite right. And I took that as a personal attack that you're having a go at me. Um, and I'd often respond by leaving the house. I didn't want to listen to it, it's not what I wanted to hear. No. So that was my shutdown, my coping mechanism. Of I'm not listening because I'm not accepting it, so I don't want to know. And to look back, there was a lot of signs that I was displaying. And a lot of, I was self-medicating, um, which is a, a thing which is often associated with PTSD, uh, Throughout with alcohol, um, in the norm to, to, to have beers every night. Um, and just got a little bit out of hand in terms of drinking for excess. Whenever I wasn't in work, I'd generally be drinking. Um, obviously, I've never drunk. I never drank in, in a around workplace or uh, and that. but it got to a point where um, I met up with my former colleague,
0: um,
1: and we had a, a patch up, a bit of a chat. Memories were sort of all coming back, and I think maybe it was a trigger for me really. And uh, we had a good night. We had a, quite a few drinks, um, and then when I off the train nearly hours in the morning uh, in my hometown. Um, there was nobody around, and I was I was at my lowest. I was absolutely broken, and um, I'd normally walk home, which is about three miles. Even if I was drunk, it would give me an opportunity to sober up and sort of freshen up before I go into the house. And I found myself um, sort of on the wrong side of a barrier on a bridge, uh, which is one that I walked over twice a day, every day, to and from work. Um, and I just wanted somebody to reach out to me. Um, but going around that time of the morning, half two in the morning, nobody around. And I just needed a sort of guardian angel. And that came in the, in the form of a phone call. And it's my wife who wondered where I was. Um, and she's a northerner by myself. Um, I'm not going to say exactly what she said because I wouldn't want to offend the audience, but there was a few choice words put in there. Um, and I was told to, to get myself home. Um, Quickly, so when I talk about this in the presentation, um, I say that she obviously wasn't that concerned, or she had she had a lot of trust in her own ability to 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 talk to me. She didn't come pick me up; she let me walk the other two miles (laughs) home. But in reflection, it gave me a great opportunity to think uh, of the past, what I would where I was behaving, where I was affecting my whole family life, the children, um, our relationship, and. I, I got home and sort of apologised, and, and then I started on, on, on my journey um, of, of recovery from mental health. Uh, I rang in sick the next day, but I rang in sick with asthma, because I didn't want to tell the sergeant that I, I, I wasn't feeling well and I was suffering from um, mental ill health. Because I, I, I thought I was, the stigma was still there, and, I, and accepted it for myself, but I still wanted to share it with everybody else, side of my family network. But within a couple of weeks, uh the dodging was pretty much obvious that uh asthma attack attacked and wasn't going away. Um and I, I told him all about it. And to be fair, um the chap had tw- the, he had about 29 years service, um, old school sort of police officer sort of mentality of sort of the phrase we all heard, grow up here, man up, that sort of stuff. But he was amazing um and was very understanding, very supportive. Um, he listened and he accepted me um, from the pressures of work. He said, I'll deal with any pressures that come your way from management or whoever it may be, whether it's your workload, you need to just get yourself better. I spent about five and a half months off sick. Yeah, and it was very tough because you, you can rush these things and uh, i trying to get better very quickly. You want to get back to work? you, you to work and help the public and, and and deliver and find yourself stranded at home and not being able to do that You feel like you're letting your colleagues down, you're letting the public down you're increasing other people's workload because they're now, now filling in for the work that you normally do um, and you don't want to let the sergeant down who, who's who's who reported you all the way through and, and I got back to work and I'm glad to say that since I got back I haven't had a day sick and it's been uh, just over three and a half years
0: Wow
2: but
1: because the Port Network was put in place um, by this amazing line manager, um, that didn't rush me. I came back in my own time, and and because of that, I, I've gone through this journey without without without. Well, I say without stolen There is dark days, there always is. Um, now they're there few and far between, and I, I can always coping with them a lot more. I can. When my wife or anyone says, "Are you okay?" Then I that means that I've give off some sort of sign or um behavior that would intimate that would let them know that i'm not well um and that's when i'll that's when i accept what they're saying and um be putting changes to to keep yourself on the on the good side of of mental health
0: do you know the The sort of strange irony behind all of this is that, you know, as as cops, we spend our careers providing safe environments for the public in terms of when there is a problem, we try to bring their lives back into a level of normality, whether it be a disturbance, a domestic, a car accident. We're there as the kind of guardian angels that bring their lives back to normal. But you you think to yourself, one thing you had to do with your colleagues when when you, through the loss of a colleague, is just give people a safe environment where they can open up those vulnerabilities knowing that they won't be judged knowing that it's not going to be the end of the world for them. And that if anything, it's a, it's a step down a new path of acknowledging it, recovering it, understanding it more importantly, and understanding potentially what those triggers can be in terms of what causes those sort of emotions to come to the surface. What have you got to do to try and help yourself manage those? G- Gary, you know, if we, if we talk about the work of PTSD 999 more broadly, are you an organisation which is in demand?
2: Unfortunately, we are. Um, since we sort of went live in mid-2015, I would suggest, um, it's just gone, unfortunately, from something quite big then to something quite huge now. Um, you know, I mean, you both hit on some very salient points, Um And we tend to get a lot more calls now once we've actually delivered our awareness um, training Um, because I think because of the the rawness of what we deliver and how we deliver it in such an open fashion. Now, I, pre-2005, would never have discussed issues around myself, mental health, and past trauma. What i found now... Um, when we give our uh, presentations to whoever it might be, just being open and honest. And as, you know, Darren said, the, the, the big guy on the stage telling people that he was sexually assaulted by two different guys at two different times as a kid. Um, one of which has gone to, to crown court. Um, I'm due back next week, strangely enough, for sentencing for that individual. That happened some 46, 47 years ago when I was a kid playing football. And, um, I would never have told anyone about that. It took me years to tell the wife about the first incident of abuse, only because she was a child protection officer herself. And something developed and we, we end up discussing it. And a couple of years ago, this one comes to the fore. So by being very open, I feel, with your audience, there's often a trauma from your childhood that we take into our adult life. And a lot of people join the police or well, the fire service or the ambulance service because of said trauma. And they just want to try and prevent that from happening. Clearly, with all the stuff that's going on within the UK, um, whether it be acts of terrorism or, or violence, um, sadly, our workload has increased, you know, whether it be by phone call or email. Um, and what's surprising is that obviously when we do give our presentation to whichever organisation it might be, Um, from emergency services to the security services. Um, We are often quite overwhelmed with people wanting to talk to us after the event because, you know, they're still worried about the stigmas that are attached to mental health and shouting out in front of their colleagues, you know. Um, And what we stress with people is that if you do contact us, we would never, ever talk to your employer. The only time we'd do that if, obviously we found ourselves in a a life-threatening situation. Mm. but for a lot of people and I'm sure darren will say this it's it seems to be quite a cathartic thing well it is for me um but again we're just encouraging people to talk I spent a lot of my career as an acting sergeant and you've both alluded to this you're always looking after everyone else looking after the team there's nowhere to go and have a debrief because those opportunities were taken away um you know the canteen stuff and all that. You know for us we would average uh, three fatalities a week um on a the railway, wherever, yeah wherever it may be That's um and i would debrief the people that turned up if i was lucky enough to have people turn up and help me now bearing in mind I, I was policing east north london west london south london um invariably you turn up to the job and you might be the only btp cop there with some assistance from the local force primarily the met um I would debrief those guys and girls to make sure they were good. Um, They weren't exposed to too much of the stuff that I was dealing with, i.e. the deceased individual. Um, And then I'd go on to the next job. And, you know, that would be how it was. And invariably between those phases, I would have to escort the deceased to the mortuary, um, book them in, and then very often go and deliver the death message. So when I look back at my career, I was sort of thrown into everything in a very mm. short and sharp manner. Um, I was doing the work of a flow. I was never trained to be a, a flow, a family liaison officer. And I, th- I would like to think that, you know, with the presentation that Darren has helped us put together now, it's really enabling people to put their hand up and say, Do you know what? Enough is enough. Whether I'm a supervisor or otherwise, it's it's time to actually reach out and say, I actually feel that I need to talk to someone. And, you know, I pat ourselves on the back for that because Darren's put a lot of hard work into the presentation and the way that we deliver, we don't hold any punches back. Um, We deliver it as it is um, to boots on the ground, to senior management. And and very often the question we get asked um, after, there we say, the traumatic um, conversations are from senior managers. And, And the simple line is, That was just so powerful. Mm. How do I make changes within my my force? And we're talking superintendent level. Now, these are people that can actually get into the training program, ensure like a first aid refresher, uh, officer safety training. Mental health and well-being should be in there as part of that package, which will enable those both in long service and short service terms and managerial positions it will give them the tools, as Darren said, to recognise the signs and symptoms in their colleagues, within themselves, and, there we say, in a broader circle, family, because PTSD clearly is very impactful on the individual. It's also very impactive on the family, um, and we tend not to realise that. And then when we look further afield, we look at the support staff and, and people that are suffering PTSD vicariously, And we've found that a very challenging subject to to cover. Um, So we're talking about our our call takers. You imagine the people that took the calls for the Grenfell fire, listening to those absolutely awful calls from people trapped in that building. People calling, you know, the Met Call Centre or any call centre with an incident that's going on there and then, you know, whether it be a personal attack on them or they've just witnessed something. It's a very distressing time. As scenes of crimes officers, we seem to forget about all those people that are dealing stuff. Not necessarily on the front line, but still are feeling the full impact of PTSD because of they're being exposed to repeated trauma, albeit via a video, a telephone call, uh, media outlets, or whatever. You know, and we're broadening people's uh, horizons now in relation to the signs and symptoms, and and hopefully giving people the confidence, which I think is key to talk. You know, I never did it as a supervisor. I just used to crack on. Um, it wasn't until it got very late in my sort of career before it was ended that, yes, colleagues did start saying to me, you need to calm down a bit. I did the the archetypal thing. I buried my head in, in drink. Completely the wrong thing to do. Um, associated, and again, Darren's touched on it, with PTSD, our addictions, mine was drink. I would drink to stop the flashbacks, to stop the nightmares, to enable me to get a couple of hours sleep a night and then go back and do the same thing the following day. You know, it was a hamster wheel, which was getting faster and faster and I just couldn't get off it until it became too late. And all because I was too afraid to come out of my comfort zone and talk to someone and say, do you know what? I cannot deal with another dead person or bits of a dead person or someone who suffered some major trauma you know because we've all said it during this conversation we're very proud individuals we, we were those individuals and still are i guess that people look up to will come to to help them but we just don't help ourselves until it's too late
0: one of the important points i wanted to pick up there was is that this mental health issue is not mutually exclusive to the lower ranks you know we tragically lost a senior officer in the last 12 months to mental health and I, I wonder Darren is there is there a conversation which needs to be had or is there an argument? And, and this may go on and if, if it does then it's a great thing but I, I'm going to assume it doesn't that whether we should be screening or asking these questions or assessing people's mental health throughout their career to just check in with them to make sure they're okay so that we don't get to the point where we've got issues where people are contemplating their futures on this planet in terms of walking over bridges turning to alcohol you know in some units we do assess psychology quite regularly in terms of the more um graphic our protection units are ones that are familiar with the kind of and counterterrorism in terms of continual psychological assessments to make sure somebody's up to it but there are so many different areas as gary has alluded to crime scene operators and others and btp officers who are seeing trauma three four times a week is there an argument to be looking and, and speaking to people more regularly than we do
1: yeah I'll, I'll say there is um, it's a, it'll a, it'll be a long drawn out process mm. and it, it's
2: it's
1: be really cheap. Nice. um to, to to screen yearly 30 40,000 people for instance yeah. um but also it, it's awful. also down to the honesty of the person from out the
2: form
1: mm. um they don't answer the questions um on a screening process openly and honestly then there's no way of picking the person up that, they've, that they're struggling. So, I mean, it's, I think, for me, uh, in terms, I think it's more about educating ourselves, educating um, those around us but to, to do daily screening by signs, symptoms, and using our, our, our senses, sort of what we see, what we hear, um, what we smell, for instance, it could be that someone could smell the mints. Are they drinking more than normal? Why are they drinking more than normal? Is there something that's are playing? Um, from sleeping, as Gary said. So, I mean, I think, although I think screening is invaluable, um, there's some pros and cons to it, definitely. Um, but it all boils down to to how open and honest you are when you are your form out. we can, we can, we can see that in others. When when we're together,
0: Gary, you know, um. Policing has been going through a tough time in the past 12, 18 months. I think the job has got a lot harder since I certainly left. I think um, accountability is uh, far higher than it has ever been uh, in terms of the power of social media, how exposed we are. You know, there are generally, you know, um, boroughs and communities are getting more complex in their makeups of the societies that we're looking after. Um, Policing is not the most desirable job that it once was in terms of people staying for 30-year careers. It seems to be quite a, a volatile place in terms of people joining. They do four or five years and then they move on to other things. Is there... What what, what can we do, you know, if people are struggling at the moment in terms of they're at that five, six-year mark where they've, their bucket is starting to fill up, you know, what, what can they do to reach out to people like yourselves in confidence to help them manage through a difficult time?
2: I think yeah, given... um a lot of stuff that we do is done by word of mouth. So if, if a police officer, firefighter, paramedic, technician, whoever sees one of our little posters in a, a police post or firehouse or ambulance station, you know, our details are on there. have every bit of confidence that you can contact us via email or a phone call. Um, you know, I think, one of the big things that we need to look at as well um, in relation to encouraging this is that the police um, are very good when you're coming towards the end of your career in helping you spend your pension fund. Well, why not introduce a well-being session into that as well in relation to you're going to have 30 years to look back onto very soon without that protective warrant card or fire helmet or ambulance, or whatever you want to protect you. You know, policing in its own is um, a very difficult profession because, like you've, you, we've all alluded to, I think, because of its transient nature, you know, you turn up to work, you, you have no idea other than a, a morning briefing or a briefing mm-hmm. when you start your shift of what's gone on within your locality within the last 24 hours yeah there is nothing to suggest as soon as you walk out the door that something terrible is going to happen so you know each step you take is a step into the unknown in that uh, in that relationship with trauma um and that fits for everyone else in the emergency services i just feel that you know collectively senior management need to be looking um in relation to retention in enabling their their officers to be able to to talk quite freely and openly um, about their mental health. And let's face it, you know, I feel that the police missed the trick many years ago when they reintroduced nurses into custody suites. Quite rightly, when you took a detained person into custody, the main thing was their welfare, and Mm. absolutely right as well. Irrespective of what they'd done, um, and the nurse was there for them, the nurse was never there for you. And, and I feel that, you know, the police in that respect missed a bit of a bit of an opportunity there to unknowingly get that balance of, yes, we dealt with the detained person, let's have a quick chat with the officer and just keep a, a running log because it was an ideal situation where someone might have turned around and said, you know what, that was tough, that job, or mm. the job I've just been to. So I think just primarily if, if the, the whole of the emergency services were to look at the bigger picture, encourage um, people to talk about their mental health and well-being. We're very good at suggesting that we're doing it. We're very good at buffering around the edges. To actually get into the meat of the problem, we tend not to go that far because it gets too difficult and we don't know what to do. Uh, And PTSD, unfortunately, sort of hits that criteria because it has got so many definitions within its own sort of four-letter wording. Um, yeah. There's so many connotations to post-traumatic stress and, and mental health and well-being. Where does one start? Where does one end with it? It's it's an ongoing issue. But if we can encourage people to talk, have the ability in a facility to technically help those people through those problems and not make it a huge drama, you know, the, the NHS are struggling big time. We, we know that. The waiting list for mental health uh, assistance is over 18 months. Private care, uh, you know, it's not far beyond it. So people that actually need help here and now are sadly not getting it through no fault of their own. And the job is not really facilitating that either. So we need to encourage, and as Darren said earlier on, educate um, the forces um, to ensure longevity, I feel, within the services. As you said, five or six years, cops are getting burnt out um, through whatever reason. But if we can maintain a healthy balance of education, awareness, Um, I feel that perhaps, especially around policing and given the current climate, it might encourage people to go back to looking to do 20 years, 30 years, as opposed to the five or six.
0: These organisations such as yours, PTSD 999, very unique in its own right, are very expensive to run. There's often a load of overheads and there are costs associated with maintaining them and being able to provide the support that you want to be able to do across a broad network to all the people that need the help. Darren, how do you go about seeking the funding and how can people support you listening to this if they feel it's a cause that they want to get involved in and, and provide the vitally important support that you need? Okay, so
1: nobody in uh, within CS99 gets paid um, with, with volunteers. Uh, I do this on... My like normal job, I don't get paid. It. Well, I'll get my expenses if I have to I carry any. Well, other than that, no one gets paid, and, and and that's the sort of part of our philosophy that we're not here to make money. We're here to make money to invest in other people rather than no one gets out. Say, Saying no one gets paid, we're not a charity at the present. Gary is working really hard in the background to to try and get it, which will open up some more doors for us in terms of sort of funding. Um, what we the we get at the moment, going to been down to the amazing people that that do fundraisers for us. There's people who go out, uh, a group of PTP officers who last week ran a uh, 43 miles, I think it was. Um, wow! Um, and it, it, was a, it was an ultra marathon, and they raised three and a half thousand pounds for PTSD nine which that's which is a which is vital. That is. That is the difference between us being able to support someone or not. Yeah. Um, but I think when it's the charitable status, we can go back to our, our original business model. Well, the original business model was that we would um, fund treatment uh, for those that's, that, that required it. Uh, due to COVID, we, we had to take a step back to safeguard the people that we were treating and also safeguard the organisation in, in general. Um, financially, uh, I think once we get back to a situation where we are able to, then it, it's definitely Barry's aim, as the sort of co-founder, to go back to what we what he wanted to deliver, and that is definitely good treatment uh, to learn all those the need So I think for us, it, it's about people just donating, it's about people We can't emphasize the value of, of awareness, so whether you make money and donated to PTSD99, yeah, brilliant. Or if you have a platform for a serene awareness like you have done, you to be able to speak about it. And that could, if one person listens to the podcast and thinks, wow, could be my mum or my dad who's working in the emergency services, my brother, yeah. my sister, my son, whoever it may be, gives that other person the sort of reason to, to expand and look into some of the feelings and emotions that they or themselves are um, going through and for us that is as, as equal to, to any donation that we've ever received
2: yeah.
0: i think it's equally important to recognize that along with the awareness of our current and past colleagues of this issue is also public awareness because i think often the public don't have a you know it was great to have graham cole pc tony stamp come on because you know Drama series like the Bill often would talk about or would cover in their scripts difficult and, and often topical issues you know, around the coping mechanisms and the issues that police officers are dealing with. Now, some of those shows no longer exist, so the public don't get to have a perception of what police officers... They haven't just attended your job today. They've attended hundreds of these previously, and we don't sometimes know what those officers have gone through or are going through because often we just see this uniform and we have this perception that, they are 100% ready to go there's no problems they're strong as an ox they'll be there for us you know come hell or high water when actually it could be quite the opposite which sometimes can be the reasoning why officers respond in the way they do they may be short one particular day they not be in a great place so Gary I would equally imagine this is just as important for public awareness and the importance of having ambassadors like Graham Cole on PTSD99 to be able to spread that message across the social media platforms and to give the public a better understanding as to the challenges.
2: Absolutely. Um, We're very lucky in having Graham. I was fortunate enough to have met Graham some 25, 30 years ago, actually on the bill. I used to do a lot of firearm stuff on there for them and putting the doors in and stuff like that. And Graham and I built up a very healthy relationship as a result. Um, and as we move forward to, you know, my coming out of the police and then Graham had been with me through that whole process. And when, again, when I spoke to Graham about what we were intending to do, he was very much on board. Dennis Stratton, another patron of ours, former Iron Maiden, in fact, one mm-hmm. of the original members of Iron Maiden, he has a huge audience through the music industry. Yeah. But Dennis goes out of his way to promote and encourage people to look at us or those um, still serving members for the people that they are. You know, Danny Cotton, former Chief of the London Fire Brigade, another patron of ours. Amazing
0: woman.
2: Oh, she is just incredible. Um, But again, all of our patrons that we've got, Bruce uh, Bruce Byron, even from the bill, uh, again, involved with many background activities. His wife, Professor Tanya Bryan. They continually talk about us to people, encouraging people, the general public to have not such a, a dour outlook on those in, in uniform, but to actually try and embrace what they're doing. Because remember, and it's we, we hear it all the time, don't we, unfortunately, whilst the uniform services are running towards danger, the general public are running away. Mm-hmm. I, you know, briefly, I remember coming home on the train one night, having done a 14 hour shift at the temporary mortuary after the bombings and listening to the general public moaning because their general day had been upset by the the traumatic traumatic events of, of that time. And, you know, you, I was stood there thinking to myself, if you'd have spent a couple of seconds in my boots today, mm. you might have a completely different outlook on what you've just said. Um, because the perception is, it's what we do and it's what we get on with. No one, as you've rightly pointed out, looks at the flip side with the trauma that remains with us throughout our careers and for the rest of our lives. Sadly, that they are pictures that are imprinted into our minds that are very difficult to, dare we say, break down into a nicer picture. And if the public, I feel, had a better understanding, there's a few, clearly, like anything in life, isn't there, that will always be on a negative side. However, right. I think that the general population aren't too bad, um, but we'll always have those... Grey areas, won't we, where people will just be of that mindset and uh, unfortunately continue to give the job, the fire, ambulance, and whatever uh, a a bad name?
1: Darren, if someone's listening, touch on um, some stats, if that's okay. Yeah, please. Um, Yeah, please. Fire away. It was quite a you talk about trauma um, within policing. So the average person would go through six to eight traumatic experiences in their life which is, that could be a, a loss of a family member, it we be in a violence assault. The statistics, and it's said that these are quite conservative, that within a policing service, there been between 600 and 800 traumatic experiences. That sort of highlights all that service. You look in the, sort of, probably every day, that the one, at least one incident would be deemed traumatic. Um. And for those who want to see, sort of, I think the best drama for me that I've seen in recent years is BBC uh, program called The Responder uh, with Martin Freeman. And and some of it is a little bit far fetched because it has to be because it's a drama. Otherwise, people wouldn't be sort of wouldn't want to watch it. But it touches really it touches some nerves in terms of mm. um, there's a young officer who's insulted. Um, and what happens to her in the locker room afterwards? The fact that she's um, struggling, and the main character himself is got sort of dealing with post stress. The counselor that he goes to is also overwhelmed and burning out, and forgets his name during the session. So it it, it, it trains, um within that show uh, as best as it probably could. Um, it challenges. police officer's
0: face on a daily basis. Well, that leads me into my next question, really, Gary. Obviously, your production with Graham, very recent, the the movie that came out, the short movie, tell us about that production and the importance that it's played in terms of starting to to recognise the challenges that that, that police officers face.
2: Yeah, so that came about as a result of a conversation between um, Darren and myself. Um, We were just exploring ideas. And then we had that light bulb moment where we just thought, well, we've both got stories. We've got Graham Carr as our president, an actor that's played the the role of an officer for twenty five years. We hmm. just got to find somebody to film it, um, because we near, near enough had it all all in place. And thankfully, um, Darren's uh, son Jack is currently uh, university in Derby, studying film with with friends and colleagues now. And as a result of that, New Tropic Films, which Darren's son, Jack, is uh, proudly uh, a founding member of, um, a wonderful organisation, they filmed Broken Glass for us. Um, And it was it was funny in its development because um, I couldn't sit and watch Graham go through some of the scenes in the film because he had based the character roughly on myself. Um, and to, for me, it was almost reliving wow. parts of my life that, I, you know, were very impactive. You sure you're all right?
1: Yes, I said I'm sure.
2: What's with all the questions? I can't just have a quiet drink. Sorry. I didn't mean to snap you. Same again, please double
1: all right you just take it easy okay oh for god's sake thing after another it's all right it's only a glass
2: it's not
0: just a glass everything's broken
2: the the film i've got to say is an amazing production it's outstanding Brand. Graham gives a real good performance in it. And, you know, we're actually using that now um, as really the opening gambit to our awareness presentation. Now, our, our presentation, I've got to say, has all the elements that it should. It's funny. It's dark. It's straight to the point. And at the end of the day, there's a couple of big shoulders that people can come and lean on, that being myself and Darren. We're showing that film right at the start now and the response from the audience in that eight minute short film, which you can see on YouTube, broken glass or fragile mind um, portrays an individual who's done his 30 years in the job and has time to reflect, has his trigger moments, has those moments of absolute self doubt Mm. and it's stuff we've all experienced and it takes for him to drop a glass in a in a public house that brings him to his knees, and just says, you know, the barman makes a comment, and you know, it's only a glass. Don't worry. And and Tom, the character, turns around and says, well, it's not just a broken glass; it can't be fixed. And very often, if we go back to the early conversation that we had around education, if we're able via that film to make people sit up and think before we've actually deployed that style of education into them, then perhaps it's it's very reflective and it is a very emotive film. Um, I'm personally so proud of it and, and of what um, Jack and his colleagues have done in relation to the production. It's been very well received. And, you know, we've got future projects that we're going to be working on with New tropic Films. Uh, they are uh, such a talented group of individuals. Um, and I'm quite sure that as we progress with that side of life they will get better and better um but yeah I'm, on a personal level just so proud of it um so yeah and it, again it's it's been a lot of cooperation from different bodies different people and because we are who we are and we're just able to i don't know encourage people to express their feelings and emotions we get that end result um which i'm you know i'm sure darren is as well especially as it's his son extremely proud of.
0: Yeah, Darren, did you want to make a couple of comments on that?
2: Yeah, um, so, the whole process was, it was it was
1: amazing, it was sort of five days of, of, of exhaustion, to be honest, we were, we were up on the film location, um, and, for me, what stood out to me, not only was the immense pride in, in what the, we were doing, what the, the lads were doing, and the girls that were involved, at the end of each day, Daddy and Graham and I all stayed in the same house. And watching Graham at the end of the day really hit me, really, because we we just been a PTSD sufferer for 18 hours. And then he, he was basically coming home and trying to decompress and yeah. get it all out of his head so he could be the Cole again. And wow. watching him how, how he processed it all and sort of going around it and now let's have something to eat Graham's back in the room type of thing for him to be able to switch off makes you think well we should be able to do that well and um, but i think the benefit of Graham having actually experienced the traumas that like Gary had for instance but the whole process and i think it also give a great platform to up-and-coming actors yeah. and that's Gary and myself <laughs> we great uh, potential going forward.
0: Fighting over who I, I can see Danny DeVito playing one of you, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, it's <from> <laughs> uh, well, it's you know the last hour has been somewhat of a journey, even for me to hear your stories and to and and for Gary to you to for you to open up and Darren equally you to open up on some of the challenges that you've faced. You know. Um. yeah very inspiring and very humbling and incredibly proud of the work that you're doing to support our colleagues across the emergency services so you know if I can do my bit in spreading the word and getting it across the 10,000 people that listen to this podcast then if we just prevent one person from having to make a decision where they think there's no help I think we've had a huge victory so I think it's an important moment to thank you both and your families and Graham and, and everyone as part of PTSD99 thank you ever so much for your service and commitments to the communities in trying to address and bring these issues to the forefront because they're so vitally important and and equally daniel darren your continued work within the met in, in supporting your colleagues with mental health and those challenges is um something that needs to be shouted about from the rooftops because it's some of the fantastic work that the Met are championing and equally you are and it's so incredibly important so thank you and uh, thank you ever so much for both of you for coming on the podcast
2: ollie thank you so much for the opportunity You know, like you said, mate, it it does sound cliche, but if we've managed to help one person, one family through this podcast or through what we we do as a a collective, then we simply have achieved and that's all I want. You know, I don't want anyone to go through what I put my family through when I was desperately, desperately in a dark place. Um, And by having this platform, having amazing people like you promoting what we're doing, I've got a great team around me uh, as Darren said we're all volunteers no one gets paid Um, but to continue to do what we do we need the public support and some funding so if you are able to make a donation get onto our website and there is a a platform there where you can um, donate but we're we're very grateful for the opportunity and, and thank you so much
0: and equally, can I just ask Darren, is there any phone numbers or email addresses that people can contact you with if this does sort of trigger any sort of emotive response of wanting to get in touch with you? How can people do that?
1: Okay, so um, within my voluntary role, the best way to contact us would be via any form of social media. Um, we've got uh, Twitter, which is, I think they're all like PTSD99 official, uh, Twitter Facebook, and Instagram, or by sending an email to barry.hays at ptsd uk or darren.strokes at ptsd99.org.uk. Or at PTSD99.org.uk. I, I just want to touch um when you mention your service, and we've talked about our service within, within, within the police uh, and how it was when we were to make it known that there is so much work going on within the Peace Service to look after our, our colleagues. Some people working tirelessly to make change. Uh, there's organisations within the Peace family and externally, like PTSD 99 9, and a whole host of others who are actually fighting and, and helping the officers of today. That it's not just me, there is a whole wealth of people uh, who, who are really fighting the cause. And, and that's from top all the way to the bottom. Um everything that I've said today is is, is my experience. Um I'm not a spokesman for the Met, but I know that the Met are doing um some great stuff. I'm sure it's being replicated across the whole of, of the United Kingdom, in all of the senses
0: Fantastic. Well thank you again for both turning up and I wish you the, the best of luck and, and let's catch up soon. Thank you very sorry, much, Ollie. Take care. Thank you. Too, thank you. Protect and serve is a Mash pumpkin production. Hosted by Oliver Lawrence. Research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Win Stanley, Produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence.